is the most important thing we're going to do in these next moments, to read from God's word, to hear it together, and to ask that he might shape us more into the image of Christ. Follow along with me, please, as I read John 14, verses 25 to 31. This is Jesus speaking at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away. I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. for The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Short prayer of thanks for the Lord's word. Father, command what you will. Grant what you command. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Well, if you have a handout this morning, um, you'll have access to the sermon outline, either for your help in understanding the passage or for the calming of your hungry stomachs before lunch comes. <laughs> Whatever the purpose may be, I hope it will be a help to you. But we are indeed looking at this next set of verses as a part two, as it were, from our last time in God's word in John chapter 14. A helper forever. A wonderful promise. There are so many promises that are found in God's word. There's so much for us to cling to in God's word in regards to his goodness towards us into what he's provided for us. In Christ, he has given us salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. Don't sleep on that this morning, church. Don't let the weightiness of that become common to you. Don't let it be the simple fact of life that you put in a list of other things that you trust are true about this world. Let it be the defining factor for you in your relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. There's nothing you can do if you are in Christ. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God this morning. There's nothing that he asks of you because it's all been given in Christ. And the way that he wants to communicate that and so many other truths to you, to your heart this morning, to perhaps your troubled heart, to perhaps the fear that you feel in your heart is by his Holy Spirit who is not simply here in one of the pink chairs next to you but the Bible promises us from Jesus' word that the helper will be with us. That through the helper, through the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son will make their home inside of us. Last time we looked at John 14, we saw these wonderful promises of Christ's everlasting presence with us. Of his continuous love towards us. And of the sure home that he has made for us. And that that home that he speaks of in the beginning of John 14 that place that he goes to prepare for you, that he says, I will surely come back. I will surely bring you back to it. Part of that guarantee is found in the fact that the home that he has for you is not the only home he talks about in this passage. The other home that he talks about is the home that he will make in us. That you, church, 
are the temple of the living God. Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 14 and John 13. In the dark night of his soul, the night before he's betrayed. And the thing that I think we want to focus on here first and foremost, as you'll see in your outline in regards to our helper forever, is that we ought to learn that as the helper teaches peace, joy, and love, he does so through the remembrance of Christ. What is new is old. What is old is new. What is it that you need to have a more vibrant life in Christ to remember Christ himself? Paul says this in his letter to Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David, crucified and risen again. Remember Jesus Christ, church. Remember him now as we're talking of him. Remember him when the service is over and you enjoy fellowship with each other. Remember him when you're in the car on the way to lunch, be it at home or in public somewhere else. Remember him when you rest today. Remember him when you serve others. Remember him when you care for your home. Remember him when you're worried. Remember him when you're afraid. Remember Jesus Christ. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is his prime objective, to remind us. And that in that reminder, we might find peace and joy and love. You could even extend that beyond to the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But he's speaking to his disciples, and it would do you well, as you understand God's word this morning, to put yourselves in the shoes of the eleven, the sandals. Actually, right now, they're probably not wearing sandals because they've already had their feet washed, huh? Put yourselves in their place. Consider the words that they're hearing from Jesus. Consider all that you are so privileged to know today with the full revelation of God's word and consider that they are hearing these things for the first time. And Peter is hung up on where Jesus is going that he can't follow. Thomas is hung up on where Jesus is going and he doesn't know the way. They're speaking for the rest of the 11, no doubt. Where are you going, Lord? Why do you have to leave? Can you imagine for a second? Would it make a difference in your life if Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'm coming back to you? We, in the time that we live in, we don't need to worry about that. We might wonder at times, right? We wonder where God is. What are you doing? But when we go back to his word and the spirit shows us what Christ has taught us, the goal is that we might be reminded Christ has never left. No matter how far I've wandered, he has never left my side. What a faithful friend, a friend forever. The Spirit lives inside of us to communicate that to us, but the disciples don't understand that, church. They're not there yet. They don't have that, that sure assurance right now. Uh, Jesus continues to teach, but you've got to imagine that in their hearts and minds, they're hung up on this thing. Where are you going? Please don't tell me you have to leave. I gave up everything to follow you. I left my nets. I left my father's business. I left the tax table, Matthew's thinking. I left my holy crusade, the zealot is thinking. I left my whole life behind, and you're going to tell me that you have to go away. And they might hear him say, I will come back to you. They might have processed that for a moment, but they said, well, why do you have to go anyway, though? What's going on here? And, and more importantly, why is it that you are prohibiting me from following? And we know, we know why, don't we? We know that there can only be one sacrifice. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can go to the cross on our behalf 
to deal with the evil in our hearts, to deal with our sin, to put them as far as the east is from the west to fulfill all of God's promises in Scripture. But their hearts are troubled. They feel that they're losing right now. They look to Christ to bring them peace. And his absence, the promise of it, the, the thought of it, has probably taken most of that away because of their lack of understanding. They look to Christ to bring peace in a way that was deeper than what they experienced during the Roman Empire. You might be familiar with the term Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that at the height of Rome's power, that they had this wonderful boast that through their strength, they had brought peace to the world. Wow. What a claim to make, right? Wouldn't you be curious to live in a time where the government thought they could bring peace perfectly to this world? Oh, wait. Is that not the promise of every politician? The people of God, the nation of Israel at the time, particularly knew that the Pax Romana was not enough for them. They knew that they had some freedom to worship God on their own the way they would like to. But every day when they walked out of their homes and down the streets and saw the Roman soldiers, they knew they were not free. They knew they did not have peace. And Christ was the one that the disciples looked to, that hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them at this time, in this moment, were looking to for peace. And he was promising those closest to him that he was going away. And yet, what does he promise in this passage? Peace I leave with you. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The way we understand peace is through power and strength. And if you go away with your power, with your strength, with your might, with your glory, how can you leave peace behind? How long will that peace really last if the one who has won that peace by his power goes away? If the Roman officials said, we're taking all of our soldiers back and none of them are going to be in Judea, none of them are going to be in any part of our empire, and we're going to expect there to still be peace. Their whole hope was in their power to bring them peace. Christ promises a little bit of a different peace. He returns in our passage this morning to the helper today. And verses 25 and 26, if there's nothing else you get from these few verses this morning, I would like you to focus your attention on those two verses. Because therein lies this repeated promise that Jesus would give a helper to us. He says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, he makes a contrast from verses 25 to 26 because he says, I'm saying these things while I'm still with you. There's an implication. I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to go away. But I am going to send the helper. I am going to send my spirit. We saw this two weeks ago in verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Is it not the goal of any religion in the world to find a way for man to come close to God? And yet hear what Christ has taught us, is that the way, the truth, and the life, the only hope for mankind in closeness to God, is not that man would find a way to climb a ladder up to him, but that the word, who was God, who is God, who was in the beginning with God, would come down and take on flesh and make his home with us. Hopefully you hear in that echoes of chapter 1 of John. 
The word was made flesh, and it dwelt, he dwelt among us. See, John opens up his book with this idea of Jesus coming and making his home on earth. And now here we are 14 chapters in, and that theme is coming back again, but it's going deeper. Because he's not just going to live on your street or in your neighborhood or in the state. He's going to send his spirit to live inside of you. And to do what from our passage this morning? To teach us. Yes, he will be with us. He will communicate his love. He will help us to walk in obedience to Christ. As he said in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the promise of keeping commandments is in that presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in 25, these things I have spoken to you. But then in 26, the contrast again, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit is your one-shop stop for learning mathematics and history and all those kinds of things. Those are important. But what Jesus is referring to specifically is his particular teaching, who he is, what he has come to do, what he has said. And who is this for, church? Is it only for the apostles? Is it only for those who sat in close proximity to Christ? Will they be the only ones who receive the Holy Spirit by faith? Will they be the only ones who are taught by the Holy Spirit by faith? No, this is for all the church. The Spirit will complete the work of Christ's teaching, not as though it was incomplete, but the completion of the Spirit's work will be in the application of its truth to our hearts. So again, not to make a plug for my sermon outlines that I give you, but that last point in there that starts with that word completion refers to the Spirit. How is he going to complete or perfect the word of Christ in your heart today? That's what he seeks to do. And he does that through what theologians call illumination. To illuminate something is just to turn the lights on. Makes a difference when you're reading a book, doesn't it? Makes a difference when you're working on your car. Makes a difference when you're cooking. There's sometimes, oh, Sarah's not here, so I can use her for an illustration. There's sometimes that Sarah comes in and she's cooking, and we have two sets of light in our little kitchen area, and I often find myself just coming in and, you know, I do the dad thing. I come into a room and either turn a light on or turn it off, right? That's part of the job. I often turn the lights on and go, oh, wow, what a difference that makes. And that's what the Spirit does in our reading of his word. And that's why it's so important, church, for you not to simply trust that, hey, you know, I think I kind of understand John 14, so whatever it is we're reading today, I think I'm going to get it right off the bat. Give you a little bit of space before we read God's word so that we can speak with God, so that we can deal with him, but also so that we could fix our eyes on him and, and draw near to him because he's drawn near to us and that the Spirit might teach us when we hear the word because of our closeness to him. Without the Spirit, we're reading in the dark. We're listening to a conversation with can noise-canceling headphones on. Again, the Spirit doesn't work contrary to the Word of Christ. And I would point out, it doesn't, He doesn't work in addition to the Word of Christ. There's no promise here that the Spirit is going to bring new revelation. There's no promise that the Spirit is going to be the one who wakes you up in the morning and says, hey, today, you better make sure to keep your right shoe untied because something's going to happen. You better make sure to stop and, and do this thing at this particular time because something's going to happen. The goal of the Spirit in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, at any point in your day is to point you back to Christ. That's why theologians call him the shy member of the Trinity. He doesn't come to glorify himself. Jesus teaches in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will come and he will glorify me. 
So if, if, if you are wondering if the Spirit's teaching you, speaking to you, communicating with you, working in your life, you need only give it one major test. That is, has the Spirit drawn me closer to Christ? Has he reminded me of what my Savior has done? Has he reminded me of my Savior's never stopping love for me? Has he taught me something true of who Jesus is? And and the Holy Spirit doesn't do this apart from his word. Particularly for those of us today, in this time, where God's word is complete and it is freely accessible, we cannot expect the Spirit to communicate to us in a lifestyle where we don't engage with his word when it's so freely given to us. So that that means, Christian, you cannot say, hey, my life will be perfectly well-led without the Bible as long as the Spirit teaches me moment by moment. You know, that that kind of twisting of that idea even comes from Scripture, interestingly enough. In Galatians 5.16, Paul teaches us, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Well, it would be pretty contradictory to say, you know, I'm going to just take that Bible verse and then I'm going to just figure out what walking by the Spirit means. Leave the word out entirely. No, remember what Jesus has taught us here in 25 and 26. The helper, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Don't count yourselves less fortunate than the disciples. He's speaking to people who are hearing him say this and remembering, yeah, Jesus has taught us a lot over these 14 chapters. Not that they're thinking of their lives in chapters. But don't think yourself less fortunate than them simply because they got to see Jesus with their own eyes and hear his word from his voice. Because his word today delivered to you has no less power than it did 2,000 years ago. Because God is unchanging. Therefore, what he says, what he does, cannot change either. There's a really great old hymn that I'd never heard of until one of my preaching heroes um, had been using it in sermons quite frequently over many years now. Um, But it's an old hymn called Make the Book Live to Me. And it's short. It just goes like this. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me thyself within thy word. Show me myself and show me my Savior and make the book live to me. Simple, melodic words. Simple prayer written by this guy named Hudson Pope. Make the book live to me. That request is not to say that the Bible is lacking something until the Spirit comes in, but rather make the book live to me. Make me realize, illuminate, turn the lights on so that when I'm reading this, I'm not just hearing some guy on Sunday morning or I'm not just hearing my own voice in my head repeating syllables and letter sounds together, but rather behind all of that, let me see the power of God speaking to me today. Show me thyself within thy word. Show me myself. Paul describes God's word as a mirror, and it is also the Spirit's work to show us ourselves in God's word. You might find yourself today in the place of these disciples, troubled in your heart, fearful about the next thing that's coming. Find yourself in God's word. But more importantly, find the Savior. This is the work of the Spirit. Jesus then promises that he will leave peace in verses 27 and 28. That he's going to go to his destination of joy and he calls his disciples to rejoice with him over that. And this idea of peace, again, that is linked to the Holy Spirit. This is all, the reason that we don't do two sermons here, I think, is because the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's teaching all these things, 
goes right into the next verse that says, peace I leave with you. I'm leaving the spirit. I'm leaving peace with you. Why is it that when I leave and my power and presence are gone, the peace is going to remain? It's because he's not really leaving in the same way that we leave the church in a little while. He's leaving, but he's sending his spirit. And therefore, peace will remain with us. J.C. Ryle says that this is an inward peace and is a rest of our conscience, first and foremost, to remind us what our Savior has done for us. Our consciences can be put to rest. Wouldn't you like that in your life? Are you ever overwhelmed by guilt? Wouldn't you like to know that the Spirit's job and even convicting, which would be to show you the truth of who God is and and how we don't always measure up, wouldn't you like to know that the Spirit's work in regards to your guilt is to put it away? Is to give you an assurance of the love of Christ? This is that kind of peace. And then in our last section here, 29 through 31, we see the purpose of his teaching. As the hour draws closer and closer, the goal of faith is pointed out by Jesus. I'm going to do this so that everyone will know that I love the Father. He wants the world to see the glory of his Father, and the Father wants the world to see the glory of the Son. So we see Christ's obedience. We see his love for the Father. We see his purpose and witness to the world. But we also have to come to this question of our love for Christ in all of this. Because peace is great. Peace is something that we need. And what we offer to the world is not, hey, listen, if you guys will just live and do your government and do your work and do your society according to biblical principles, nothing will ever go wrong. We know that's not true. And friends, it is way too easy for us to hear the voice of somebody who says, I would like to make America a Christian nation again. You just got my vote. You had me a Christian nation, right? No one can truly make those promises, church. Our hope cannot be in saving our country. People in our country need saved. Individuals that you interact with, they need to hear this good news. They need to hear that peace is available. And I'll tell you why. Don't, don't throw rocks at me for listening to NPR this past week. I was mostly just channel surfing and sometimes Christian music. I, well, I don't know. I'm going to leave that at that, let that hang, and just let you wonder what I mean by that. As I was tuning past NPR, an ad came up for a program that was coming later on. The title of the ad was Trust Your Instincts, and how that phrase has been used for decades, right? A wonderful thing to put in a movie, by the way. Trust your instincts. As the teacher, the wise master disappears. Trust in the force. Trust your instincts. Listen to your heart. What does your heart tell you? It's fascinating that as they were talking about this topic in this short ad, the host pointed out that it may be that trusting our instincts is just recognizing former patterns and responding in the same way. That trusting our instincts is not to say that there's something inside of us that just kind of knows how to deal with the lack of peace in whatever situation we find ourselves. I heard from the secular world this week, guys, that trusting your instincts could just be recognizing former patterns and responding in the same way. Who was it that said that um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting, you know, different results. Is it Einstein or somebody? Einstein. I should have just been confident. It was Einstein, you guys. 
That's insanity. That's what trusting your instincts gets to. And it's fun in 2022 to hear that on the radio and be like, yup, I mean, I don't want to be a smart aleck to the radio, but I mean, come on, you guys. I've trusted my instincts before. It doesn't work. I've trusted what I think I've known in the past and only found myself in trusting myself to do the exact same thing over again. That doesn't bring peace. More importantly, it affects the test of love that Christ gives us this morning. So our conflict is to realize how our forgetful hearts are tested as we wait. The disciples are in a place of waiting right now. Jesus is going to go away. He said he's going to come back. How do we wait? What does this look like? What are we going to do? When are you coming back? Thousands of questions are racing in their minds. And this whole idea of trusting your instincts, going with your gut, listening to your heart, going back to the basics, you see that later on in the Gospel of John. I think I mentioned this last week, so forgive me. But after Jesus resurrects and conquers sin and death and he appears to the disciples, we have this awesome episode in John 20 or 21 where Peter says, I'm going fishing. And everybody else says, we're going with you. We're just going to go right back to where we were when Jesus found us. I'm just going to trust my instincts. What does my instinct tell me? Peter says, I'm a fisherman. My instinct is to go out, throw a net, sit in absolute silence for days if necessary. I tell you, describing fishing is very different than actually doing it, right? But our instincts so often just lead us back to where we were before. And in that, leading us back to where we were before, we see our need for the Holy Spirit because the Spirit's job is to remind us, to call to mind all the things that Christ has taught us. And the test in verses 27 and 28, look at that with me, if you will. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So he's making a distinction here. It's that calming of the conscience. It's an inward peace. It's not that everything around you is going fine. It's that you're fine with everything that's going on around you. Because you have a greater hope. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I will come to you if you loved me. Have you ever been struck by two or three words in the Bible? Because that's what happened to me this week. If you loved me. Ooh. So easy for us to long for that, that personal conversation with Jesus. I would love to just hear his voice. And I realize that often what he might be saying to me is something he's already already said. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Our forgetful hearts, we forget that before exaltation and resurrection, there must be humbling and crucifixion and death. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you were really listening, and if you really, if you actually loved me, when you heard me say these things, You would have rejoiced with me. You would have been where I'm aiming to be. Yeah, Jesus is in the dark night of his soul too. His heart is troubled. But what is he doing in response to that? Same thing he promises the Holy Spirit's going to do for us. Calling to mind the word that we've already been told. When Jesus knows, tonight's the night. I just sent Judas out. He's going to betray me. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be put on a cross. I'm going to suffer and die. But my father said... This was the plan. My father wants me to do this. My father is going to bring me back and I will conquer death. And so he had joy. Jesus says, in a test of love, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced as well. Don Carson helps us with this as well. He says that the grief of the disciples reveals a degree of self-centeredness. Did you know? This is tough. I think it was Vodi Bakum who said, if you can't say amen, say ouch. 
the grief of the disciples in this moment. Why are they grieving? Because Jesus is leaving. That's the thing that's made them so sad and sorrowful and their hearts are troubled and fear is overwhelming them. Jesus is leaving. And then Jesus says, well, if you loved me, you wouldn't be grieving the way you do. You might have grief, but you would also have hope and joy because I'm going to my father who's greater than me. Carson again says, it reveals a degree of self-centeredness to where we have made Jesus our own personal savior according to our own standards of peace. Jesus should be your personal savior, but according to his standard of peace. We make him into an idol when we demand that he not leave, when we demand that he fix this thing in my life, when we demand that if he would like to see us accept the peace he offers, and if he would like to see us love him the way that he's asked us to, we have a couple of things to deal with first. Explain this, Jesus. And they're, and they're, not, they're not always petty things. Sometimes they're weighty, heavy things. Why did my loved one have to die? Why do I have to suffer through this illness? Why do I have to deal with the fact that I have a child who may not know Jesus and who may not spend eternity with him, but somewhere else instead? Some of these lofty, heavy things that trouble our hearts. Jesus still says, if you loved me, there would not only be grief, but there would also be joy. There would be hope, not at the sorrowful things in the world, but in spite of them. Do you see the difference? He wasn't saying, hey, rejoice. I'm going to go suffer under the wrath of my father for all your sin. Rejoice about that. Rejoice that I am going to go through the darkest night of the soul of any person who ever has. No, the rejoicing comes in what that means. The rejoicing comes in spite of what it costs. And the cost draws us to wonder and awe and love. The test of the Holy Spirit, the test that Christ presents for us. He gives us the answer key. He gives us the Spirit to help us along in this because it's very easy for us to misplace our love for Christ, to become forgetful Christians. Spirit is here to restore our love. Temptation to worldly thinking for peace and joy, we can, we can find that all the time. We can find it in the matters of, of political hopes, whether you, you like the blue side or the red side, and, and who might have changed sides in recent days, who knows? You could find it in the idolatry of good things. Remember, idolatry, awesome definition. Not for me, it's Tim, Tim Keller said it. But idolatry is just taking a good thing and making it a God thing giving it an ultimate purpose, raising it up beyond what it's supposed to be. Marriage, a good thing. Well, if my marriage is not perfect or if I'm not enjoying every minute of my marriage, well, then my life is in shambles and it's terrible. No, 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 no. Don't make it an idol. Well, what about your job? Oh my goodness, God made you to work. Work was there before the fall in the Garden of Eden. He's designed you to have special skills to put things together, to understand things, to relate to people. What if things at work aren't going well? and I don't let the peace of Christ reign in my heart, it's because I've made work an idol. I've made a good thing a God thing. And Christ sends his spirit to deal with these kinds of things. In all of this idolatry and in all of our hopes and different things, we find ourselves so often to be more attentive to our own sadnesses, our fears, and our worries, rather than to find the things that bring our master joy. 
I was, I was led in thinking of this to Matthew 25, verse 21, where Jesus tells a parable about um, uh, a man who went away and he left his money, he left his resources to different servants, and he left certain amounts to certain servants, and, and he came back, and, and if they were able to multiply and to produce something with those resources, then he gave them a, quite a blessing. He, his words, particularly in Matthew 25, 21, were, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little. I will make you faithful. I, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into what? Do you know that last part? The joy that I give you for you yourself, the joy of your master. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. I'm rejoicing because I'm going to the Father. So often our idols lead us to sadness, to fear and worry, take away our peace, take away our love and make it cold. And we forget that our focus ought to be on, Lord, how can I bring you joy today in my life? What a prayer request for a Monday morning, church, to wake up and say, show me how to make you pleased with my day today. Do you think he's going to be like, no, I want you to figure that out for yourselves. <laughs> Got you now. Don't think of God that way. Remember, the Holy Spirit is reminding us the things that Christ has taught us so that we can walk in them so that we can remember them, so that we can have life in the words of Christ. And so if our prayers come from God's word, there is every assurance that all the promises of Jesus Christ are yes and amen. And we can pray confidently when we ask him for such, such things. And the reason that we can, when we come to Christ, we see that he calls us to believe what the helper reminds us. Holy Spirit, speak to me. I don't know what to do right here. I've got this relationship that I've got to work through with this family member, and oh, it's in shambles, and my work has just been so much, and I don't know what to do about my kids for crying out loud, and oh my goodness, I forgot to do that thing again. And the Spirit so often in that mess and storm of your life will just simply stop and say, remember Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, because of the great love with which he loved us. We did not first love him, but he first loved us. Would you love Christ in the midst of that storm? And would you see that storm not as God going, whoops, kind of let things go there for a second. What is Nick going to do? Oh man, I don't even know. Oh, I, I have to say, church, that what we see from God's word is a God who is completely in control of all the circumstances of your life and who offers you peace in the middle of and in spite of the storm. Do you remember when Jesus sent his disciples away to the lake? Go on to the other side. I'm going to dismiss this crowd that just wants to make me king, that wants to turn me into an idol, that wants to get something from me right now and cares nothing for what I want to teach them. He dismisses that crowd. He meets them in the middle of the storm. He himself walks on the waves because he is greater than the waves that threaten your life today. And this is the ministry of the Spirit. This is what he wants to remind. This is how he turns the light on in the darkness of your life. J.C. Ryle asks, why do we see so little peace and joy in the lives of believers? He says, few believers attend as strictly as they should to Christ's practical sayings and words. If we want to be eminently happy, we must strive to be eminently holy. If you have this in your mind, 
um, this little, little trite phrase of um, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Have you heard that one before? I, I would encourage you to just kind of like get rid of that one as though they're contradictory things. Again, that phrase being God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. However you word it, know that he cares for both of these things because it is when you rejoice in Christ that you are most holy. Again, Ryle says, few believers attend as strictly as they should to Christ's practical sayings and words. But if we did, if we had a helper who would remind us of what Christ said, of what he taught us, that in the middle of the day we'd say, Lord, I need help, and he might call to mind something we read that morning or the week before, who knows, maybe even in the sermon, that the illuminating teaching of the Spirit would call to mind those wonderful truths and that we would rest in them. That we might pray like this, Spirit, teach me, remind me, preach the gospel to me, remind me what my Savior has done, remind me I'm justified by his blood, that I am sanctified by your continual work to make me more into Christ, and one day I will be glorified with him. Not on the same level as him, but I'll be in his presence and I'll be whole, I'll be complete. There will be no more suffering, no more sin, no more sorrow. Jesus' teaching, in verse 29, has the end goal of belief on our part. And so it is with the Spirit. His goal is that you might believe in Christ. And don't hear that again as your, man, that is like the 2,000th time that Nick has said that. And that's all he ever says. This is what John is telling us in this book. He's writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in believing, you might have life. Church, the reason that you come and worship on Sunday mornings is not to learn some new thing, but to be reminded. If this is what the Spirit's doing, then this is what I want to do. And it should be what you want to do as well in the lives of other people. To say that Christ, the one in this, in the end of this passage, which boy, is there, this is why, a short little chunk of scripture in here, and there's so much. Verse 30, Jesus says, I'll no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That is like, that's a power verse, don't you think? The ruler of this world, the enemy of our souls, he has no claim on Christ. He might have a claim on you if you don't have faith in Christ, but if you are in Christ, there's no claim. He can't go to, the the enemy cannot go to God and say, this is a sinner, Lord. Do what you do with sinners. Rather, Christ says, this is one of mine. Do what you do with me. You are in Christ, church, if you have faith in him, if you trust in him. Jesus stands alone in human history as the one over whom the enemy has no claim. That is peace. That's why he can leave it with you. And that one day when he comes back, we will know beyond the shadow of any of our doubts that we have peace with God. How can you embrace a daily pattern of listening to the helper as he shows you Christ? I'm going to just give you three short things as we end this morning. The last two messages on this, I've asked myself this question, why does Crosspoint need the helper? And this week, the answer from God's word, to fill our hearts with affection through the illumination of Christ's teaching. Why do you need the helper in your life today, church? To fill your hearts with affection for Christ through the illumination of Christ's teaching. And he wants to do that. And it's not a mechanical, uh, impersonal action. This is the spirit of God himself, not itself, living alongside us and shedding light 
on what we read. So three things. First of all, how can we see that Christ is doing this, that his spirit is illuminating the words of Christ in us? First of all, from this passage, we now find peace in his victory, not in our own. How, how do we so often live? Things are going pretty well. Had a good week at work. Got everything done. My kids listened to me yesterday. You know, we kind of just hang our hats on some of these little things and we go, I got victory. I got peace. Here we go. You can have that every day, church. You don't need to fight for it. Battle's won. We can find peace in Christ's victory and therefore we can obey verse 27 when he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You can obey that because of Christ's victory. This peace that is not circumstantial like the way the world gives. The world gives a peace that leaves room for fear and the troubling of hearts. Go back and listen to any of Jesus' sermons or teachings in the Gospel of John and ask yourself, does he leave me with a, a feeling of doubt and uncertainty and a room for fear in my heart? No. If I believe his words... I can find peace. Bruce Milne calls this peace a nourished and a peace that is nourished and expressed in the midst of relationships and responsibilities. So I kind of referred to that earlier when I mentioned the storm of your life. That just being not that one big thing, but the eight million things that are hitting you from every side, from work, home, family, church, wherever. This peace is nourished and expressed in the midst of relationships and in the midst of responsibilities. So we now find peace in his victory, number one. I would ask you this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, to wake up and just ask the Lord this. Lord, how can I bring Christ's peace where I go? How can I bring it to those that I know, that I work with, that I'm going to interact with? Secondly, we can know that the Spirit is illuminating Christ's word to us because we have a new hunger for his word. Remember, over and over in this passage, one of the things that struck, stuck out to me as I read it was how often Jesus talks about teaching and remembering and speaking and words and the things I spoke to you. He's very concerned that we not only listen and obey those things, but that we grow in a hunger for more of them. That when we come to God's word, we don't come to it again going, here we go, I don't really know if I know what I'm doing here. You don't have to know what you're doing, church. Just know that what he wants to give you in his word is what you need. Rejoice in that. So we have a new hunger for his word. The spirit makes the difference in our reading his word as we seek treasures of hope every morning. Stop and say, all right, Lord, yeah, I wanna, I wanna be a bearer of peace in this world, but I also need your spirit to show me before I read my chapter, my five verses, or however much. Spirit, illuminate, turn the lights on for me as I read that I might understand and that doesn't put aside all the effort we do in study, okay? It's not to say you don't need these wonderful resources of Bible dictionaries and commentaries. Those things are great. Use them, but trust the Spirit to reveal the truth of his word. And then lastly, we know that the Spirit is illuminating the word of Christ because we have a perfect source of joy in the finished work of Christ. And I would ask you again, Monday through Friday this week, if you would wake up and pass that test, if you loved me. Wake up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, what would bring you joy? What can I do to please you this week? And you know his answer theologically will be, I'm already pleased with you in Christ. Here's how you can walk in that. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the great grace of your word, for the teaching work of your spirit to turn the lights on, as it were, in our hearts 
that we might know and obey all that you have to say to us. But that more than that, Lord, more than head knowledge, Lord, your goal is not just simply to puff up our minds to make us feel that we have attained some nirvana of Christianity or something. Some, uh, some point of enlightenment. Because it's the work of the Spirit to enlighten us, to illumine, to turn the lights on, that we might know the love of Christ and walk in it this week. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.